My name is Mike Burke, and I'm a corporate partner with Arnold Golden Gregory in its Washington, D.C. office. I also co-chair the firm's pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry team. And I'd like to welcome you to the eighth episode of our podcast series, I Wish I Knew What I Know Now, Conversations with AGG on FDA Issues. Our podcasts feature AGG attorneys discussing challenges they've encountered when assisting clients on business and legal issues. Today, I'm thrilled to have Bob Durkin with us. Bob is an attorney in the Washington, D.C. office in our FDA and healthcare practices teams, and he's a dietary supplements industry team leader. Prior to joining AGG, Bob was the deputy director of the Office of Dietary Supplements at the FDA. Today, Bob and I are going to focus on business divorces in the food space. And I will warn folks that we're going to take a liberal definition of both divorce and food space in this podcast. One of the things we've seen perhaps over the past two years is sort of an uptick in what we would consider to be business divorces or disputes between companies that have implications for their, in this case, called a supplements or food regulatory status. Yeah, Mike, that's really accurate. You know, the pathway has become much more complicated recently over the last few years, with the way that a, a product, a specific commodity is brought to market. Process right from identifying the components or the ingredients, the manufacturing, the package, the labeling, post-market surveillance, it's very fractionated. A lot of times the distributor of a food or a dietary supplement will work with a lot of different parties to do multiple tasks in that process of bringing a product to market. And it's inevitable that when you do enough business and you're out you know, in commerce, that eventually you know, you're going to have a business disagreement or a shortcoming with one of your partners and inevitably can wind up in sort of a business divorce like you've described. Well, and one thing that you just hit on is sort of these multiple strands that come together to create a finished product, which also implicates some of the supply chain issues that not only have hit, you know, the pharmaceutical slash food slash supplements area, but more generally have impacted U.S. business over the past two years. And whether or not those supply chain issues are an exacerbating factor on other issues that trigger this kind of a dispute or divorce. No doubt, Mike, you know, the supply chain, you know, very complicated. It's, it's certainly not uniquely domestic. It's foreign. FDA has taken a very serious turn with, you know, a new generation of food safety, smarter food safety, with an emphasis on traceability of ingredients, you know, blockchain and certain other, you know, requirements to understand where every component of a product of commerce, you, you can trace that back and understand where it might be in domestic commerce as a way to identify risk and mitigate it. So it's for sure that, you know, the whole blockchain concept and the requirements for traceability have put pressures on these fractured relationships and bringing that product to commerce. Everyone has to be really clear about what their requirements are. And when somebody else in that chain requires help identifying where a component or a product is, each specific player in that chain has to be able to do their part. Yeah. To borrow another lyric from a song somewhere, let's start at the beginning with, you know, our kind of, I don't want to call it a widget because it's, we're not giving an economics lecture, but sort of the straw man company that we had discussed and sort of the various risks they would entail. Let's assume for a minute, we've got a U.S.-based supplements company. And let's take your example again of different pieces of 
the end product coming from overseas, even from inside the U.S. I mean, what kind of document, you know, sort of front end document set or documents would we be looking at as between the supplement company on the one hand and these various suppliers in the chain? Sure. So what you've basically described is to you know, some extent the distributor of a product labeled as a dietary supplement, which means that they'll be operating under the requirements of 21 CFR Part 111, which the details, the definitions, the requirements for what's called good manufacturing practices for bringing a dietary supplement to market. If it was a conventional food or a medical food, it would be under 21 CFR 117. But 111 is a better example to work for because it's more segmented and it's easier to identify different, you know, various steps in the process. So you start with the end product. What will the specifications be for that end product? And you essentially work backwards and identify all the processes and controls that have to be monitored and maintained to ensure that you make the same product every time and that that same product is wholesome and that what's in the bottle matches what's on the label. And it all starts, I mean, quality is not tested into a product. Quality is built into a product. And, you know, the quality, the GMP start with components coming in your door, actually on your loading dock that you're eventually going to use to make your dietary supplement. And um, there, there are requirements all through 21 CFR 111 for things like maintaining the plant, the grounds, certain requirements for employees, requirements for a quality unit. Someone in the relationship has to take responsibility for setting specifications for components. Someone in the relationship has to take responsibility for validating the specification, verifying the specifications. And each of these requires a certain set of documentation that FDA is going to expect when they do an inspection. Ultimately, the distributor is responsible of, you know, under Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act 301 uh, for a violative product being put into commerce. And it's sort of like a marriage up front, you want to set expectations. You want to know who's going to be required for what, what the expectations are. Folks are always anxious to rush into a business deal when they think they have a good idea. And uh, sometimes they don't pay attention to those upfront documents. And, you know, they don't matter. Those documents don't matter until they do. And it seems like they end up mattering when there's a problem with the product and commerce and folks involved in the chain start pointing fingers. And it's not a situation where you can come in at the time a problem emerges and paper the relationship in a way that makes any sort of sense. Not the least reason because the FDA would take a pretty dim view of backdating <laughs> agreements. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it, just as it doesn't work in the securities area, it doesn't work in, in the FDA area. No, it certainly doesn't. And these responsibilities have to be satisfied up front. Someone has to be doing this or the product was violative right from the point it went into commerce, right from the point it was released. So if, if someone in the relationship isn't setting specifications, verifying and validating the specifications, if someone isn't setting specifications for the final product, keeping reserved samples, conducting a pharmacovigilance or a consumer complaint adverse event program, these are things that the FDA take very serious. Even you know who's responsible for the format and the contents of the labeling. And the label, will it have a supplement facts panel? Will it have a nutrient facts panel? And, you know, other than aside from the regulatory liabilities, we're seeing a significant uptick lately in civil liabilities for certain responsibilities in the process of bringing a product to commerce where a plaintiff's attorney or some opportunistic litigator 
finds a shortcoming in a product and, and tries to, for lack of a more sophisticated term, shake someone down, shake down the distributor for a quick 40 or 50K. Well, and, and it's almost like through the civil process, they're almost trying to impose strict liability where the FDA on the regulatory side does not impose that liability in events where there's a, say there's a GMP issue. Right. That's a really good point, Mike. I mean, the act is written in a manner where technically speaking, it is a strict liability statute and the FDA can take action whenever they see fit. And that's the key. The FDA decides to, maybe it's not formal, but they use enforcement discretion and they reserve their limited resources to address issues that are a risk to the public health. So, you know, if, if someone's label for their product miscalculated protein, unless that product is a medical food or it's economic adulteration, it's done to take advantage of the consumer in a monetary way, FDA, FTC are not going to get involved. There's right. no risk there to the public health, to people's pocketbooks to protect. But that doesn't mean that a plaintiff's attorney isn't going to understand, you know, hey, protein's on here wrong. My client relied on that. The proverbial so, light bulb goes off goes yeah. off over somebody's head Absolutely. And, and an opportunity is sensed, yeah. So, you know, with the reformatting of the nutrition and supplement facts plan in the last couple of years by FDA, we've seen an uptick in those types of lawsuits. And that's the type of responsibility you have to narrow down up front. The foundation to bring that product to commerce, who's ultimately responsible for the label? Who's responsible for the format of the label? Who's responsible for the claims, for the supplement facts panel, the nutrition facts panel? A lot of distributors, dietary supplements, never touch the product. Right. They open up a catalog, they find a product, they call the manufacturer up and say, you know, please call this Bill and Bob's wonderful supplement and uh, send it to my film and center at this address, click. And yeah. they never touch the product. That's all they ever really do. Now, even in that situation, that distributor still has requirements and responsibilities under 21 CFR, mostly documentation. You know, then you have other distributors that are very much more involved. They might actually be the manufacturer or they may insist that the manufacturer set uh, a certain specification or a certain type of ingredients or make it a certain way. They may set specifications for the final product. They may send them a label to use. All of these have to be ironed out up front so you know who's adhering to the GMP requirements. And if there's a failure somewhere in the process, you know who's responsible from a monetary and a regulatory perspective. Right. So you can unwind the relationship. I mean, let's be clear. There's never, you know, people say, use the phrase orderly unwinding of a business relationship as if there is ever an orderly unwinding of any business relationship. And we know there never, I've been doing this 23 years and I've yet to see one. That's accurate. Aside from the civil liabilities that come from just plaintiff's attorneys, when relationships are unwinding, they do get nasty. And we have some clients right now that are on you know, either the plaintiff side or the defendant side, where there are accusations being thrown around that specifications weren't followed, that right. the product was adulterated, leaving the last $90,000 of an order at the manufacturer because there's some reason why it might not be compliant. It seems to be repetitive and it happens where folks always wind up going back, you know, looking at the master manufacturing agreement or the quality agreement, looking for the terms, looking for the responsibilities. And you need to be sure those documents are in sync and you need to be sure that they're very clear about which one controls what aspect of the relationship. Yeah. I mean, and speaking about quality agreements, we've all seen them where the bulk of the agreement is that appendix with the chart. And usually it's a bilateral. Now, sometimes there's three parties, but, you know, the, a lot of times it's, you know, a bilateral agreement where 
one company gets, you know, we're responsible for certain things. I guess one thing to think about is how to structure that sort of allocation of risk or allocation of responsibilities in a way where if you have a disagreement with one company, you're not sort of pulling a thread that unwinds relationships you don't want to unwind at that point. That's a great point, Mike. You know, instead of running away from the fractured process of bringing a a commodity to market, for some clients, it makes sense to embrace it. And even if they're involved in multiple aspects, multiple responsibilities of the process, sometimes we suggest that they form different corporate entities or different relationships with affiliates and that they're very specific about which entity is responsible for which aspect of the process. And it's sort of, um, you know, it's a term that you bring fencing. And when you ring fence, it not only mitigates risk from a civil liability, but it also helps to better identify which entity in the process is is responsible for what GMP requirements. Yeah. I want to go slightly off track. You had said something earlier about GMP and you just now referenced it again. One of the issues we see, or I've seen, uh, because a lot of my practice crosses borders, is this question of what I would call equivalency, where a non-U.S. party to the supply chain will say, we're going to comply with our home country's GMP equivalent, mm-hmm. but we're not going to comply with GMP itself. I mean, so you know, and that's yeah. always, yeah. What are you, yeah, Bob, what are your thoughts on that one? Well, you know, if a product is going to be, if a food is going to be imported, whether it's a component or a finished product, there's a program under FISMA called Buyer Verification Program. And that puts responsibilities on the the lead agent in the United States or the firm, the company, the entity in the United States that's going to put that product into domestic commerce to ensure, make sure that that component or that finished product was made to GMPs that at a minimum would satisfy the requirements of U.S. GMPs. So, you know, arose by any other name, they can say they're manufacturing it to any standard. But as long as the, the responsible entity in the United States can ensure that it's being made to our minimum standards, it's acceptable. But FSP has its own requirements. There are verification requirements. There's documentation requirements. Certainly seeing, you know, after FIS, an uptick in FSVP actions by the agency. You know, not a Tuesday or Wednesday goes by where FDA isn't making public a warning letter for FSVP violations. Some of them are pretty simple. You know, they, they didn't have a program. They didn't have an FSVP plan. Um, and some of them are more specific where they may have had a plan, but didn't act on it. You know, FSVP is certainly something that has to be paid attention to when you're starting the process. Let's turn back to divorces. Not that we like them, but, you know, they tend to occupy a lot of our days. You know, the extent to which there are FDA or other registrations that could be impacted by a business divorce. And obviously, if you're the distributor, you don't want to lose you know, quote unquote approval to sure. access the U.S. Sure. market. So let's. So, you know, there's not necessarily approval. Sometimes there's notifications or other requirements to be met before you go to market, depending if it's a grass substance or a food additive or a dietary ingredient. But what can happen is if FDA does a regulatory inspection, maybe just a routine monitoring inspection or, you know, heaven forbid, a for cause inspection, one of the partners in your fractured chain of bringing that product to commerce. Let's say they go into your contract manufacturer and they find issues there. You know, FDA could, if the types of GMP issues that they find are risks to the public health and they find that they affect all products that company manufactures, they could theoretically force a recall of your product 
even though the responsibility for the adulteration wasn't on you. Right. So it's really it's really important right. up front that you vet your parks. It's really important that you understand their, you know, what's their corporate philosophy? Do they have a culture of safety? Diligence up front, aside from the papers, diligence up front about who you're actually making the deal with. What's their record? Go there, take a walk around, ask to see some SOPs, ask to watch a product through the manufacturing process. Be diligent up front. So that, you know, when your million dollar baby's on the market for three years and you're, it's lucrative and it's finally paying off, that you don't have, you know, metaphorically the carpet ripped out underneath you because someone in your supply chain messed up. Well, that diligence point, I think, is, you know, can't be overstated. And in the early days of the pandemic, sort of March, April, May of 2020, we all of a sudden saw this proliferation of possible deals possible because people were popping up out of the proverbial woodwork saying, I have medical supply, I have this, I have that. And of course, what tends to happen is some numbers get bandied about and numbers associated with dollar signs specifically. And then the diligence kind of goes by the wayside or gets short-circuited. You know, Mike, that's the point you bring up. Anytime we give advice from a regulatory perspective to a client, we understand that's a business decision at the end, that they're not asking for our opinion about a situation relative to regulations or statutes. There's a business decision that has to be made and that time can be invested based off the advice we give. We're very cognizant that we have to provide, you know, an understanding of the risk, possible remedies, mitigation strategies, how to correct something that you have to address immediately. Is it something that could be corrected over time? It's important to provide a lot of uh, context you can't just be a regulator. You have to understand their business and understand what they're trying to accomplish. These answers aren't binary, right? I mean, they're not yes or no. I mean, our partner, Alan Minsk, he uses the example of, you know, speeding on the highway. You know, are you doing 60 and a 55? Are you doing 80 and a 55 with two broken taillights? You know, et cetera. And highlighting the risk. But then at the end of the day, like I said, some of it, not all of it, but some of it's a business decision. Sure. And I mean, you know, uh, there's a difference between not setting specifications for a component or a final product or not controlling a very critical process in the production. Um, there's a difference between that and, um, you know, maybe you don't have an asterisk on your label with the 403R claim. Again, it goes back to the philosophy of FDA where the statute is strict liability, but they're going to reserve their resources for threats to the public health. You have to sort of look at you know, your regulatory opinions and your guidance and your suggestions through that lens. That's not to say that a labeling claim couldn't be something that the FDA would immediately jump on, but um, everything's a degree. Everything's on the, the scale. One of the things, and again, I'm probably reflecting the fact that I'm a corporate lawyer with this question slash comment, but when we're drafting some of these supply agreements, we often include language that provides for, you know, a post termination handover to a new supplier, an orderly transition, if you will. Sure. I mean, that's tough to get in the practical sense, especially if you've had, I'll call it a blow up, right? I mean, it's, you know. Especially when you consider that FDA's position is that if it's not documented, it didn't happen. And that for all of these GMP responsibilities, that's what they stick to. You could have done it, but if it's not documented, it didn't happen. And there are retention requirements for every document that pertains to a GMP responsibility. Right. And it, those documents may have to be alive. They may have to be available somewhere post-relationship. 
FDA come in and inspect it and want to see those in a reasonable amount of time. Well, and that's why, you know, with both quality agreements and pharmacovigilance agreements, we reference the overarching supply agreement, but we have quality and pharmacovigilance survive a year past the last use something. Sure. That's where a lot of the lines are drawn for retention in the GMPs. Some are longer. For example, uh, you know, a serious adverse event yep. has yep. to be reported to the FDA, has to be monitored for a year. But those records, I believe it's five years or six, they right. have to be available for that long a period of time. Now, right. let's say that you've contracted out your requirements for consumer complaint triage. If that relationship falls apart, that doesn't mean that the documents that job or that that contractor has wouldn't be required. So you have to make sure right. you address those up front, that you have access to those and that you're going to be able to rely on them. Right. And frankly, most companies do engage a third party for that triage function. Very complicated. It's not yeah. something that, you know, you have to have a certain skill set to be able to do that. And, you know, some products can be very simple and some products can be very complicated. So you may be able to, you know, Deshay wasn't written. That's the part of the statute, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that deals with supplements, wasn't written to make process overly complicated. But ingredients but. <laughs> and process, right, ingredients yeah. and processes in the last 25 years have just grown so complicated. It's become just a reality. Right. And the regulation hasn't kept up. I mean, not at all. Yeah, I mean, all. and you can point to not just other sections of the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, but uh, for example, you know, we've been talking about with another partner information technology issues and how some of the regulation is like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Absolutely. The Shea became effective October 15th, 1994. And we've had this little thing really explode since then called the yeah. Internet you know, online commerce. You've heard of that. <laughs> right, right. And that, that's really changed. I mean, yeah. a lot a lot of aspects of the Shea, you know, electronic information storage, electronic signatures, different things. Um, the Shea isn't necessarily counter to a lot of that, but it, it doesn't necessarily embrace them either. Right. Well, Bob, I think that might be a good stopping point for us. I know that uh, our listeners, they may want more, but we're also cognizant that when it comes to podcasts, shorter is sweeter. But I want to thank you, Bob, for taking the time today to talk about this. My um, pleasure, Mike. And we hope that you found this discussion to be informative. If you, the listener, have any questions or want to submit your feedback to us or have any topic suggestions for future podcasts, feel free to reach out to Bob or me. You can find our contact on the firm website at agg.com. Future podcasts will be distributed through our monthly food and drug newsletter, as well as our website and social media outlets. Thank you again for joining us. And Bob, thanks again for your expertise. Thanks, my pleasure.